So we're in this series called Why? Asking God the Hard Questions. And as we have jumped into this series, I have found there's no shortage of people asking God hard questions. And one of the things I love about doing this series is that it seems like it's given people permission to talk about the hard stuff in their lives, uh, the questions that they have, what they're going through in their lives. Um, and so this morning we want to continue our conversation and talk about the crisis of belief, the crisis of belief. Because oftentimes when we go through difficulties in our life where we have hard questions for God, oftentimes it leads us to a crisis of our belief, um, our faith in Him. And even if we don't question our faith in Him as Savior, sometimes we question our belief in His goodness or how He could possibly allow bad stuff to happen to His people. And that's what Habakkuk was questioning. God, how can you allow this bad stuff to go on? And today what we're going to talk about is that God's answer to Habakkuk, if you remember, was, uh, sorry, buddy, but it's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. I'm going to let my people come to a crisis of belief where they decide if they want to trust me and they decide if they want me in their life. So I believe that all of us, every single one of us in the room, face these things we call crises of belief where we establish what exactly we believe about God. Is he good? And our faith gets tested, and our character gets built, and our endurance is increased. And what I want to say to you today is so important that you understand and that you hear, and that is that the testing of our faith is a normal part. Can you say normal? Normal part of the Christian walk. Sometimes we act as though, God, how did this test happen? Well, it's normal to be tested in our walk. It's part of God's plan. Every great man... I challenge you to find one that wasn't. Every great man or woman of God in the Bible had their faith tested, including Jesus Christ. If you remember, both Matthew and Luke record this, and they say the Spirit, God, led Jesus into the wilderness to be tested. And if you know your Bible, that was just before he was released into ministry, the last three years of his life. So just like we have the Hall of Fame in sports We also have a hall of faith, and it's in Hebrews chapter 11. And Hebrews 11 is a rundown of some of the great heroes of our faith and those who entered a crisis of belief in their life. And God delivered them from their crisis. So let me just give you a little rundown. Sarah, remember her? She was delivered from not being able to have a baby for about 70 years or so. And then Abraham was delivered from the crisis of having to lay their first son, Isaac, on the altar and sacrifice him, Jacob was delivered from years of sorrow, thinking his son Joseph was dead. And then finally, God brought Joseph back into his life and he rejoiced. Joseph was delivered from years of prison where Jacob thought he was dead. And finally, Joseph was delivered to become the deliverer of his family. Moses was delivered after 40 years. Can you say 40 years with sheep in the wilderness, hanging out with sheep. How many of you know that's not a great life, right? Unless you happen to love being a shepherd, then it would be a great life. But that's where he was for 40 years. There's more. Rahab, Gideon, Samson, David. They all went through extreme testing, crises of their faith before God delivered them. But then there are the others. You see, Hebrews 11 doesn't end with just those that God delivered But it also gives us examples of people who were not delivered from the crises of 
belief that they had in their life from the hard things they went through. And in fact, they're called the others. Hebrews 11.35 says, But others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some of these were jeered at. Their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half. Others were killed with the sword. That still happens today in other places around the world. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute, oppressed, mistreated. They were, and I quote, too good for this world. Too good for this world, says the writer of the Hall of Faith. They wandered over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves, holes in the ground. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith. That's what God saw in them. That's what they're remembered for, not their deliverance. You know, we tend to highlight the the great deliverance story, which is great. We love a good miracle, don't we? We love a good deliverance. But what about those who were not delivered? Do you know what God highlights? He highlights their faith. He highlights the fact that they stayed with him even through the hard times. And none of them received all that God had promised. For God had something better. Would you say something better with me? Something better in mind for us so that they would not reach perfection without us. So as we talk about crisis of belief this morning, here's what I want you to know. And that is that having great faith doesn't mean that I'm always going to receive what I want, what I desire, even what I think that God should give me. I'm not always going to receive the object of my faith. And, you know, this is a problem because we get disappointed and we get disheartened. And I'm with you on that because we think somehow that God's love is proven for us through whether or not we receive the answer to our prayers or whether or not life is good and smooth and happy. We tend to judge God by how life goes. When testing comes, it forces us into this crisis of belief that God allows where we struggle to believe that God is good or we struggle to believe that God is loving. That, you know, the the idea that life should be smooth and good is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel we follow. That's not the plan that God gave us to follow. Let me give you some words that might describe the truer plan. So the true gospel is a gospel of struggle. It's a gospel of trouble, of pain, of suffering, a cross to bear, a cup of sorrow to drink. Somebody say, man, I'm sure glad I came to church this morning. (laughs) Got that beautiful sunny day out there, and Pastor Kurt's talking about a cup of sorrow. But this is the life. This is the walk. This is what God has called us to. doesn't mean there won't be some good times, some happy times, some stress-free, crisis-free times. There will be. There will be. But the crisis should not surprise us. We should expect the crisis and even welcome it because of what James says, that it's an opportunity. It produces this opportunity to believe what is true about God even when life is hard. Now, I'm sorry this morning that this sounds like a downer, but God's plan for us on the planet includes crises of belief. And I think our problem is that somehow we don't believe that, and so we fight against it rather than saying, okay, I expected that. 
Why should I expect any less than what Jesus himself dealt with in the wilderness and on the cross? So the point of this is that God has something better planned for us than a trouble-free life on the planet. That's number one in your notes this morning. God planned something better for me than what this world has to offer. What is the better? Let's talk about that. What's this better that God has planned for us? The better is the faith that is forged in the crucible of crisis where we're squeezed. I call it being in the squeeze. And what comes out of us is what's in us, right? And so we want to move toward a time that that more of Jesus comes out of us in those moments than more of ourself. And this prepares us for heaven. This gets us ready to go home to be with Jesus. You know, Friday and Saturday, we had two remarkable memorial services right here in this room. Both of them, in their own right, were remarkable. Mary Lou Fisher, who most of us know, and most of us, if you know her, you love her, right? She's an amazing woman of God. She so deeply impacted so many lives, starting with her family, but in our community and and even around the world. She was a high-impact person. But she wasn't a person you might notice making a high impact. And Mary Lou went through many crises of faith in her life. Life was not perfect for her, but, but what she did with those is she continued to press in to God and to pray for those people in her life that she loved. She believed God was good, even when life was hard. And she let God live through her daily, even though she might have been in a crisis at the moment. Her legacy of impact in this community is immense. You may not, you may not know it, but what she contributed in prayer, I'm actually a little worried that Mary Lou is gone. Some of you all are going to have to step up a little bit and fill her shoes because she is truly a prayer warrior. She's a prayer warrior. So step up. So there's Mary Lou. And then there was Sid Barron. What a remarkable story of a Dutch immigrant who came to Linden and quite possibly the greatest, in my mind, one of the greatest entrepreneurs that has ever been in this area. And if you read his story, it's just remarkable. Many of you enjoy praise radio. Let me see. Who listens to praise? A few. Just a few, right? So Sid started the radio station and captured 100,000 watts of power, which was unheard of back then, which now has been passed on, of course, to praise radio, who gets the benefit and legacy of 100,000 watts of power right here in this now Bellingham in our county. Uh, Sid started that. But there's so many other things that he was a part of that blessed people's lives. But what a lot of people don't know is that Sid was diagnosed fairly early in life with MS, multiple sclerosis. And this was a crisis, not his only crisis, but a huge health crisis for Sid. His eyesight suffered severely for a time. And as a teenager working for Sid, I worked in his store, I can remember him wearing gloves on his hands because the nerve endings of his hands were impacted by MS so that everything that he touched caused him a great deal of pain. And so in the middle of summer, I can remember him wearing gloves on his hands. I can remember him on the tennis courts behind Mike's house, uh, Mike Hollander, playing tennis with Mike with gloves on his hands because he refused to quit, but the pain was so great that he would do what he could to lessen the pain. But here's the thing about Sid. He continued to place his trust 
in Jesus. He did what he could to fight his condition, and he invested deeply in people over the years, individuals, mostly young men who he mentored. I was one of those men who uh, benefited from cheeseburgers from Sid on Saturday at lunch, you know, lunchtime at the store, and we would just chat. We would just talk. He had this way of, of pulling out of you what was in you. Great mentor to a lot of people. You know, years later, another crisis entered his life when his daughter Julie was struck and almost killed by a car that was driven by a drunk driver, and it took her months and months and months to recover. And Sid could have lived a life in bitter resentment, angry, getting vengeance. But when Julie recovered, what they did was the two of them spent years on a panel that would go and speak to people that had been arrested for drunk driving and tell their story to try to help these young drivers never want to repeat. They used their pain to change lives. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I mean by how do you respond in a crisis of belief? How do you respond when life is falling apart around you and the people that you love the most are in incredible pain? How do you respond in those moments? That's what we're after today. And Sid in his... Some of his last moments before going home to be with Jesus cried out the name of Jesus with his pastor as he got ready to go home. He trusted Jesus with his life. And I believe that's really what life is about, is learning to trust Jesus through the ups and the downs of life. Learning to trust Jesus as we encounter crisis after crisis, getting us ready for the better that he has prepared for us, a deepening of our faith, an an expanding and a healing of our character and getting ready to go home and be with Jesus. So we read on in Hebrews chapter 12, just after this hall of faith, verses 1 through 4, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance, the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting Jesus, the greatest hero, he endured the cross, disregarded its shame, and now he has seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility that he endured from sinful people then you won't become weary and give up when you hit your crisis. Think of Jesus, what he endured for us. And that can really help us as we decide how we're going to respond in our crises of life. Then I love what the writer finishes with. After all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. So here's what I believe. I believe every one of us are in our own race, and I prefer to see it as an obstacle race. There's obstacles in our life. Anybody ever have an obstacle or two that you've had to overcome or surpass in your life? Yeah. Every obstacle we face is a part of our own race and it's it's kind of designed with us in mind. And each obstacle provides a crisis for our belief. Another chance to believe that God is good and to invite him into this race that we're running as we go from crisis to crisis. And that's number 2 in your notes this morning that God is perfecting and authenticating my faith through crises of belief. Why do you have to go through hard stuff? Because God is perfecting us. 
And God is even authenticating the fact that we are truly a follower of His. It's a great question. How do you know that somebody's a follower of Christ? Right? Only God really knows because He sees the heart. But there's some clues, I think. And I think one of the clues is that we see how, as life goes on, we see how uh, they or us, how we respond in the crises of life. Do we trust our Savior? And, and really, life should be a progression of trusting Him more and more through crises. What we really believe about Jesus comes out in the encounter, right? So Becky, who leads us in wonderful worship uh, almost every weekend, and we know her as the worship director, right, the worshiper, she is also a marathoner. She's a marathoner. Now, did you know that about Becky? You didn't know that about Becky, did you? She's a marathoner. How do I know that? Because I see her out training. Well, you say, well, lots of people run. No, Becky's on a schedule of running. She's on a schedule of running. That means that, that she increases her mileage. She increases her time. She trains. She pushes through the pain of each increase or each increment as she trains for marathons. But the other reason I know she's a marathoner is because she has completed a marathon or two or three. Got number four coming up, right, in Bellingham. So that makes her a marathon. It's been proven that she's a marathoner. So what makes a marathoner? Well, you have to complete a 26.2-mile race. That's the test that authenticates you being a marathoner. If you don't finish, you're not truly a marathoner. You're an almost marathoner. And how many of you know it's probably not great to be an almost Christian? Right? Now, you can argue me theologically on that. That's fine. But the Bible said, by their fruits... You shall know them. And so I believe that each of us who know Christ, if we're authentic, will be moving progressively. It's called sanctification toward the goal of trusting him more and more and more. Never perfect on this side of heaven. Uh, We will have our times of failing and falling, but more and more and more so that when we get to the place of Sid and of Mary Lou, we'll be trusting God with our lives, even when crisis comes. So there's a training program that lasts months and months. It has milestones, 2 miles, 5 miles, 10 miles, 15 miles, and it builds your endurance. And every time you pass one of these milestones uh, and live to run another day, you're a little bit closer to completing a marathon and getting the prize, right? The fact that you finished. And by the way, that's what God says to us. He wants us to finish. It's really not about how perfectly you run or how fast you run. It's really about finishing. The race. So Peter said, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's by His great mercy that we've been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that's kept in heaven for us, pure, undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay, beyond crisis. And through our faith, God is protecting us by His power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So what are we running for on this planet, on this earth? We're running for the prize. And we overcome obstacles in our life. We have crises in our life that we overcome with God's help as we run. Now, here's the thing. If you look at marathons... 
Once you train and once you prepare and once you're running the race, you're still not crisis free. The marathon itself provides several crises in your life as you run it. There's one I want to mention. I guess at about two hours average for people, the body begins to break down. It begins to run out of glycogen, which is sugar, stored sugar, and it begins breaking down the protein now in the muscles and the tissues of the cells. And eventually, if this continues, your body will shut down to protect your brain because apparently the brain is the most important organ. I don't know. What do you think? So the body will do that. And so what you have to do is you have to start feeding your body some nutrients as you run. And so that's why you see these nutrient stations along the way. And that's why people pack these little tubes of glucose, you know, that they can take while they run about every 15 minutes to avoid what they call bonking. I'm not kidding. That's the technical term. Bonking, hitting the wall within the marathon. For fast runners, it happens at about mile 20. For people like me, it'd be about mile three. You know what I mean? (laughs) Which is exactly why I don't run marathons. We'll never run a marathon. And just like marathoners, we need times of nutrient, of refreshment, of restoring in our lives. And again, I've covered this extensively. Those are times of worship, of prayer, being in the Word, having daily nutrient uh, refilling times in our life so that we do not hit the wall and we do not become bonkers. You know? That's why we take in those nutrients. So Peter says in verse 6, So be truly glad there is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. There, there it is, right there. It's being tested as a fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong... Through many trials, that means you continue to believe what's true about God and that He is good and that He loves you. When your faith remains strong, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. So here's what I want to say to you about faith this morning. Faith is a choice. God's given each of us a gift of faith. Faith is a choice that you choose to employ in the moments when faith is required. And I would say that's just about every moment. Of every day, some moments more than others. Faith is a response you choose in the midst of a crisis or a trial. It's the nature of faith to love and to trust in somebody and in something that you cannot see. That's the nature of faith. We cannot see God. Uh, we don't know everything about the mystery of God or how He's going to respond to us, but we can trust that He is good that he will respond, that he has entered in to the struggles that we have. We can trust that about him. And these crises we have in life give us opportunities for this to grow in our lives and become stronger. Like James said, I mentioned James earlier, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy, for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. Let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Nothing except Jesus, that is. So that brings me to number three today. My perfect is, and your perfect is, when I come to trust that God is good and faithful through my crises of faith. Even when, like the second half 
Hall of Faithers in Hebrews 11? Even when I don't receive what it was that I had faith for. So what happens if you don't receive the healing you had hoped for? What happens when you don't get the answer you were desperately waiting for? What then? What do I do with God when He doesn't come through in the way that I had hoped or the way that I had wanted? Well, this morning we're going to end our service by inviting you into Tracy's story. And she's going to talk a little bit with us today about what that looked like in her life. It's hard to get your identity outside of cancer. Like, cancer is not me. You know, I am not cancer. I have cancer. I think the biggest thing I've struggled with, with emotions and with people, is they assume that if you look good, like if you have hair, you feel good. And that's not the case, you know, at all. I'm the oldest of three. Both my parents are in the medical field. We kind of joke about it, my siblings and I, that we grew up in the fire station and the hospital because those were our playgrounds <laughs> a lot of times. And we grew up boating, going out to the San Juan Islands. Being out on the water is, is a special time for, for my family and for me. My parents, you know, grew up in the church. Their installation of faith on us was, was super important. I always thought that my parents, especially my dad, being that he was in the hospital working and fire department, that he was indestructible. When he got cancer, I realized that, um, that life wasn't, life wasn't guaranteed. I realized that God, I, I can't do this on my own anymore. And I want you to be the source of my strength, not anything I can muster up on my own. That's really when faith became kind of my own. I wanted to know the Bible. I wanted to not know it um, like a Sunday school answer kind of a thing, but I really wanted it to become part of my life. So I chose to go to Bible college. I wanted to do missionary work. I wanted to do youth group work. I wanted to do teaching. And then I got diagnosed with cancer. Right now, I am a metastatic stage four breast cancer, a nine-year total journey so far. People have said that I have great attitude, and, and that's hard. You know, people don't see, they see what they want to see. They don't see, you know, when you're sitting at home by yourself, they don't see the, the inside emotions. They don't see the fear. They don't see the, oh, I want to do this today. I want to be normal, and I want to do something normal, but I can't do that. My mom moved down with me for a while. The basics of getting dressed, brushing your teeth, putting on your shoes, I couldn't do it. It's very humbling to have other people care for you in that way. A big part has been joining a dragon boat team um, called the Pink Phoenix, which has all breast cancer survivors. And those bonds have been super encouraging to me and laugh about breast cancer and cry about it at the same time. It's something to have someone that actually knows what you're going through to walk through it with you. My church has a, a mission house. 
When I was diagnosed with cancer, my church allowed me to move into that house for a couple months. That was a huge, huge blessing. There was many times I would just go into the sanctuary and, and pray <laughs> and or yell. There's been a lot of a lot of growth for me at the church and a lot of just those inner, you know, the inner questions that, that I asked of myself. It has definitely been a place of, of rest. When I was diagnosed, my opinion was that God, you didn't answer my prayer of, you know, help me out in life here because you gave me this mountain. Many times just asking God to move that mountain and struggling and knowing why God gave me that mountain to climb when when other people don't have to climb. You don't get breast cancer at 27, you know. I always had told myself that I will never choose to have a hysterectomy because that's choosing not to have kids. And God, I can't do that. And then when I was re-diagnosed and I had to have the hysterectomy, I'm like, okay, God, it's not a matter of me choosing. It's a matter of this is part of your treatment. If you want to live, you have to do this. And so I can't have kids. I will never have kids of my own. That hurts big time. Like I see my niece and she acts so much like her mom did when she was young and I won't be able to do that. One of the, the hardest things about having cancer is, is the things that it takes away. that mountain that I thought was cancer, that I really wanted him to just move, God changed that and he said, it's not a mountain that I want to move. I want to move you closer to me. We're going to go up this thing together and I'm going to hold your hand. And when we get to the top, the view is incredible. And there may be other mountains and valleys along the way but you're not doing this alone. God is with me. God is there. God is good. And my reactions and emotions will, will stem from that. So if people see me having a great attitude, it's because of God, you know, and what he's done. And if people say I have a lot of faith, it's because of God. It's not, you know, that I'm being naive and just ignoring the the scenarios and, and the cancer, it's, it's choosing to respond in a positive way. Cancer has been a huge blessing. I lost a lot, but he gave me so much more. thank uh, Tracy's family for allowing us to share that with you this morning. I uh, just felt like it was such a powerful testimony of what do you do and where do you go when the answers don't come. And I just love, 
I just love the way that she has put it. And I love what she said. It's not a mountain that I want to move. I want to move you closer to me. And I do believe that that's what happens as we go through crises in our life, that it gives us the opportunity to move uh, so much more closely to the Lord than we would. And so this morning what we want to do is just end with a time of worship, give you a chance to respond to Jesus. And you may remain seated, you may stand, whatever you'd like to do. But I want to encourage you this morning that as you think about people in your life going through crisis, maybe yourself going through crisis, um, think about what is it I believe about God in this moment. Is He good? Does He love me? Those are the hard questions. And so we invite you to do that this morning. Two songs. Just going to take a little time to soak and uh, enjoy this time with Jesus.